Hello there and welcome to a very unusual episode of An Irishman in America with me, Jarlath Regan. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. I would love if you went over and kicked in a couple of euros over there to help them with the incredible work they do for youth mental health back in Ireland. Sadly, we've no Marion this week. Instead, though, we've something quite extraordinarily timely for you. While Donald Trump continues to deny the results of the election, preferring to espouse conspiracy theories that lack any evidence whatsoever, I have a story for you of an actual conspiracy that extended from the NBA to the highest corridors of power. A conspiracy that had its roots in the Gambino crime family, made millions of dollars for them, and was only uncovered by pure chance. The man you're about to hear from explains that this was only the beginning. Tim Livingston's eight-year investigation into bribery and corruption in the NBA is the subject of his extraordinary podcast miniseries, Whistleblower. And that's available everywhere now. I urge you to go and download it. Today's episode of An Irishman in America is kind of a crossover podcast for us with our other series, Irishman Inside Basketball. You might not know about this, but we've made this series now for a few months and it features conversations with some of the most unique voices in the game, all of whom have a connection back to Ireland. It's available for free when you sign up on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and features people like Pat Burke, the only Irishman ever to play in the NBA, Sue Moore, the greatest Irish female basketball player ever, Kieran Donaghy, the Kerry legend, Roland Lazenby, who's of course Michael Jordan's biographer, George Mumford, who's Michael Jordan's sports psychologist and the director of White Men Can't Jump, Ron Shelton. It's all over there, along with lots, lots more for you to enjoy when you sign up at patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. My name is Tim Donaghy, and on July 28, 2008, I was sentenced to federal prison for betting on games I refereed. In 2007, the NBA's worst nightmare came true. Tim Donaghy is a convicted felon. He's admitted that he's bet on games. I told that cheating ass ref that he was cheating, and I told him he's making it too obvious. Tim Donaghy, outside official, made the call late. There is clear evidence that, in fact, Donaghy was fixing the games. I'm a writer and a journalist, and in 2012, I wrote an article in defense of Tim Donahue. The whole strategy of the NBA was Tim is a rogue referee who did bad. We think we have here a rogue, isolated criminal. It's the worst scandal ever. He had to be the scapegoat. Looking back at that article, I see now what I could have never dreamed of seeing then, namely the stakes. The main money is the TV money. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars. This is big business. And the question is, is it being acted out fairly? I 100% believe that they can program the outcome of a game by who they select as the referee. All of our lives were in danger. We were worried about getting killed at one point. This isn't a story about one rogue ref. According to Tim Donahue, it wasn't him that was fixing games. It was the NBA. You know, the NBA game is more of a form of entertainment. Once I got to understand that, I was better suited to be a ref in the NBA. Coming August 27th from Tenderfoot TV, this is Whistleblower. 
There are rumors that you had two NBA referees on your payroll fixing games, and that neither one of those referees was Tim Donaghy. Is that true? Correct. Former NBA referee Tim Donaghy was in the middle of a major scandal that led to his arrest on charges related to a mob-backed betting scheme, accusing him of betting on NBA games that he officiated. Well, if you've been living under a rock, or maybe you're just not a huge NBA fan, and this passed you by, Whistleblower, a new podcast from Tenderfoot TV, and Tim Livingston, who joins me today, deep dives, I mean properly deep dives into this scandal. And you know, Tim, when I thought about what the first thing I'm going to ask Tim, I was going to ask you, are you normally a conspiracy theory guy? But then the more I got into this and the deeper I dug, the more I was like, this isn't a conspiracy. This is a thing that happened. And the question is, how far and deep does it reach? It's a great, I love that you said that because that's exactly how I feel. I think in, there's certain things that get chalked up to conspiracy theory that aren't, that actually happen. And it's our job, especially in 2020 with all the resources at our disposal to really discern what is conspiracy and what happened. And in this story, in the NBA betting scandal with Tim Donahue versus the NBA, this all happened. And what happened, for those who haven't listened to the podcast, is that there was a massive cover-up. Tim Donahue was a flawed character. He was betting on games he officiated. He was not the best guy, but he exposed a system. The NBA system was in need of a total overhaul. It was operating with its referee. Its referees in the front office were in cahoots to make sure that big market teams and big market stars advance in the playoffs which essentially makes it, in my estimation, wrestling. And so for those who love basketball, this was an abomination. And what I wanted to do with this story was dive that deep, like you said, and figure out what actually happened here. Because when, I, when we did that, and we re- really started digging every single angle, when we started digging the referees and David Stern, the former commissioner, and Mark Cuban, what we found was absolutely fascinating. So I, I love that we're starting it off there. Because it's not, it's not a conspiracy, it happened. Truly fascinating is the word. And I'll be honest with you, Tim, I was reluctant. I was reluctant to do this because I felt that pressure that you talk about in the show that other writers felt. Here's me with my burgeoning NBA basketball podcast where at some point in the future I'm probably going to have to have interactions with NBA head office. And I wondered, is this a wise thing for me to do? To Is this a good guest to have on? And I know that that, you know, that's that's silly of me in, so, in some ways, but it's largely what other NBA writers did on this. Can you talk a little bit about why this hasn't been gone into in the way it ha- you've done? And I have to commend you on the journalism on this. It's like extraordinary. To me, it's the serial of basketball. It's just a, on another level. But I feel like you're, the answer you're about to give me has something to do with the death of David Stern. Wow. Uh, well, first off, I really appreciate you saying what you just said, because I haven't heard any other 
journalist, NBA uh, personality um, of your ilk admit that, that you have to, like, you're, you have a burgeoning NBA podcast, and this is a business. So having me on talking about this puts you at risk for having Adam Silver on or having Mark Cuban on or having a lot of great potential guests. So I first off really appreciate you having me on and having this discussion. And my ultimate hope is that the NBA can can listen to this, that it gets big enough. We've gotten, you know, we've been on all several of the biggest sports talk shows in the U.S. People are talking about it. Our download numbers are, are very substantial. However, the NBA hasn't had to answer for this yet. And I really hope if the NBA hears this or hears any of the interviews that I've done, they know that we're all basketball fans. Hmm. We all want the game to get better. We want the game to heal from this travesty. And that's where this all comes from. The, the Basketball is an incredible sport. Played it my entire life. Have a torn Achilles bill to prove it. And I mean, I love, I love the game. I love the sport. And I still watch the NBA. I'm not saying don't watch basketball, but the game can get better. And anybody who watches basketball and loves basketball knows that it can. So to answer your question and, and go back, the media 15 years ago was not in a position to tell the story for several reasons. Number one, if you were an NBA writer and you came out and tried to do what we did in 2020, what we did today, you were going to be blackballed from the NBA. There was I've talked to several writers who tried to write something about this for major sports publications in the U.S., and those stories were mysteriously squashed. The NBA, under David Stern, controlled the media in a really perverse way. And I've heard several. I've had several off-the-record conversations uh, with very prominent writers who wanted to dive into this that couldn't. So the timing here is really important. This story needed to come out 13 years later, and the fact that David Stern, who by all accounts appeared to be in good health, passed away right before we interviewed FBI agent Phil Scala, who was the most important interview that we did for this story, it's all really bizarre. And the, the media is complicit in this. At the same time, I get it. If you're a basketball writer, that's your dream job. You know, if most basketball writers, uh, anybody who's doing a basketball podcast and getting paid, to, this is the dream. Hmm. And if you were to report about this, if you were to look at this story in a way that you knew in your gut, because I think all of us as basketball fans knew that some of these games were rigged. We didn't know exactly how it worked. We didn't know the system in play, like how, what all the moving pieces were, but we knew that something was wrong with a lot of these games. And so, yeah, 14, 15 years ago, this was, the world was a different place. The commissioner was a different person. And it was, I, I, in my estimation, close to impossible to get this story out. The wow. NBA was going to do whatever they could to squash it. Wow. Well, let's go back a little bit, Tim, into who you are, uh, first of all, because like you say, you are a basketball lover. You described yourself as a Jewish point guard living in L.A. with a temper <laughs> <laughs> who, who regularly lost it with refs as a youngster over calls you believed were bad calls and could appreciate the power of referees early on in life and also their ability to manipulate them. At what point did you become, as the Irish would call, a cute whore? Uh, to, <laughs> to be able to recognize that if you pal up with a ref or pay them a compliment or just, you know, 
be nice to them, that they're more likely to give you those 50-50 calls because I think this is kind of the bedrock on which this whole discussion can be built. 100%, because referees are part of the game, but we want them to be as small and insignificant and unnoticeable as possible. So when I was a kid, that's really you've the the Jewish point guard thing is really funny. My wife's gonna laugh at that, <laughs> but that's why I, I mean that's what I was. I grew up in L.A. I had a basketball hoop in the backyard. All I did was shoot basketballs from age five to sixteen. That was all I did. I played in, into high school and eventually I, I didn't grow above six feet. I was better at baseball and, and made the decision to focus on baseball. But basketball has always been my favorite sport. And five years old, six years old, I had a temper. I watched every Lakers game. I knew I knew the rules. I knew how basketball was supposed to work. And at that young of an age, when you know you're just trying, if if two shots are made in a, a five year old game, then you know all the parents are ecstatic. And <laughs> and but I I was at that point already starting to to bitch and complain about referees. And then I got a little bit older, probably twelve thirteen, and I realized that okay, these guys are human, and. First off, in, in every instance, the referee doesn't want to be there. Whether they're in the NBA getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, like their vocation, think about that job as a referee, right? You, your job is to get booed by 20,000 people every single night. You're universally loathed. If you gain, if you're noticed, if you, you know, if your name is in the newspaper like Tim Donahue, it's because you did something terribly wrong. Mm. Always. Nobody, if, if, if a referee has a great game, show me one newspaper article of any great game where they say and by the way the three referees <laughs> did a fantastic job yeah success well. is invisibility like, never, it, it, well said success is invisibility so with that being said what an odd vocation what a strange livelihood but when you're when i was a kid i realized they don't want to be there if you go up to them and you make a little why you know if you make a wisecrack you make a joke you endear yourselves to them then they're more prone to give you calls right so okay, here's a, here's a little flaw in the system that I can exploit as a player. I can initiate contact now, and I'm more likely to get this call, even though it's a 50-50, 50-50 call at best, because this referee likes me, hmm. right? And so I realized as I got a little bit older, that's the way I needed to play the game. I stopped complaining, and I started trying to endear myself to referees as a, as a young player in middle school and high school, and that helped me advance and, and do better as a basketball player. And and obviously plants this seed in your mind at a, at a very young age uh, and that grows into what we're looking at right now. But let me dig into this a little bit because, the, as you say, the essence of both of our shows is the love of the game. And I can remember learning the rules at roughly the same age as you. And our coach, Joe O'Connor, had the ingenious idea of getting all of his players to qualify as refs, which was, I just thought it was genius even at the time because we were never short of refs, number one. And number two, it made everybody realise how difficult the job is and how all of the calls are subjective. I mean, I'm living just outside of London right now where they're in the middle of a huge crisis in the English Premier League as to how the rules are administered and how the spirit of the rule, you know, but this, this is this is very different. That is, that is completely different to what refereeing in basketball is about. 
And anyone listening to this will know what I mean when I say that one man's foul is another man's fair play. That's just the rough and tumble of grab and rebounds. It is a very unique sport, Tim, would you agree, for the subjectivity of calls on fouls that will determine the game, that will actually determine the score and obviously then subsequently the ability to bet on it. That to me makes this whole Tim Donaghy, this NBA scandal, all the more murky and all the more grey and hard to get into. Because even if we look at the games that you no doubt are referring to, like the Kings-Lakers game that most everybody has seen on YouTube, where something fishy is going on, whatever way you look at it, bizarre calls are being made. But it is possible to make those calls because in the heat of the moment and in those games, you can kind of, you can even hear the commentator saying, did he get him on the hand? The margins are so fine that this game actually quite lends itself to a corruption through refereeing. Correct? Correct. And I love that your coach did that, by the way. That's fascinating. And, it's and a great incredibly idea, right? shrewd. Fantastic idea. Uh, I'll, Joe O'Connor. Um, we're going to look that guy up. <laughs> so, no, it's subjectivity in basketball is a problem. And if you look at other major sports, uh, there's going to be controversial officiating, refereeing, umpiring throughout sports. It's inevitable. But in basketball, the difference is that it happens on every play. Every time down the court, there's contact. Every time down the court, a guy shuffles his feet. Mm. Uh, once or twice on a screen every single time every single possession there is the potential to call a foul and if you look at tim donahue donahue was the one of the highest rated officials in the league the league thought he was good at his job even though he was fixing games for what well, and donahue didn't really re- we get into this podcast donahue didn't realize how big this balloon but donahue was fixing games that were moving millions of dollars per game for the Gambino crime family and other gambling syndicates. I mean, this guy was fixing games and was considered by the NBA to be a good ref. And this is the murkiness that you talk about. Because if you look at the Sacramento Kings, the 2002 Western Conference Finals, I watched that game as a fan. I watched the 2006 NBA Finals between the Heat and the Mavericks as a fan. And I feel like something's wrong. And that's that's in my gut. And that's what this all really started from in, as far as wanting to investigate the NBA you know, those games, like, I, I, I know there's something off, but good luck proving it definitively 100%, right? You mm-hmm. can't because of that subjectivity. We present a lot of evidence that suggests that the NBA wanted certain outcomes in certain games. And we break down how the system worked. We break down how it starts with the TV money, and it, it filters its way on down to where everybody in the NBA, owners, players, referees, they know that the NBA wants the Lakers versus the Knicks in the finals, right? That's the ideal. Those are the two biggest markets. Or the Lakers biggest money. versus Lakers, as, as Stern put it. Lakers, exactly. Lakers versus Lakers is, you're right, option one. If the Lakers could all clone themselves and play in, in some sort of bizarre uh, <laughs> match, then that would probably be number one. But then it's it's really big market teams. David Stern wanted that. David Stern saying those words, Lakers versus Lakers, is his, is his ideal finals matchup. That How is it not supposed to 
stick into every referee's mind in the NBA. Mm-hmm. They all know he said that. When they're repping a big game with the Lakers, do you think that's not in the back of their mind? Like, oh man, Kobe, Kobe, uh, you know, threw an elbow there. But uh, you know, I if I want to referee in the finals, if I want to make that extra twenty five, fifty thousand dollars, then I'm going to ignore that and make sure that Kobe doesn't get called for that and the Lakers win. So we present a lot of really damning evidence, but the games are so subjective, and that's where every single NBA fan. What but what's been incredible is I haven't heard from any again like twitter is as you know where every troll comes out to tell you everything you've done wrong Hmm. and of all the basketball fans that have reached out to me there's been a consensus so far unanimous that fans are saying to me hey thank you 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 got like the the work you did was great here and this is me patting myself in the back so i apologize this is no but that um, is um, interesting though tim because there is a portion of people that haven't reached out to you because yep. they want to believe in Santa Claus and they, <laughs> they, they genuinely don't want to hear their fingers in their ears because these memories, I know for you, it's LeBron. For me, six years older than you, it's MJ. I don't want anybody sullying these memories of these games. They were so important to me. Please don't tell me it was pro wrestling. But that's where we're going yep. with this discussion. Let's get to Tim Donahue himself. Now, he reaches out to you and it reminded me of a guest I had on our main show on the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network guy called Willie Carlin, who you won't know, but some of our listeners have probably listened to this episode. Now, this guy worked for MI5, basically the this black ops version of the CIA during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And he was a double agent. He was a member of the IRA during the Troubles. And his family didn't know that he was working for the Queen. They didn't have a clue. And he was embedded deep in the north within Sinn Féin, working and feeding information back to the crown. And this guy approaches me to be on the podcast and tell me his story. And my first question to him was, why should I believe a word out of your mouth? Because you're clearly an incredibly good, deceptive liar. Did you have that a little bit with Tim, where you'd written this great article and he'd reached out and said, thank you so much, load of O's, for writing this. Uh, Let's be pals, essentially. Was there any hesitancy in you as to, well, this guy's a shady character. How much am I going to believe out of his mouth? That's a great question. Tim... Donahue is a fascinating character and he's been able to for the past 13 years tell the same story over and over again and that story for those who aren't familiar is yes I bet on games that I officiated but I wasn't fixing those games and that's been the company line that he has repeated over and over again he said it on 60 minutes he said it on hundreds of radio shows Hmm. and everybody has kind of just nodded and said oh yeah okay sure so I was always sitting back here like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This guy was had money in the games he was refereeing, and he admits that he might have subconsciously made calls to affect the outcome, 
but we're not going to like really press him on this. So as part of the investigation, we looked at data. You know, there's betting data available where you can see the line movement in games, right? So explain the line because key, over here we don't we don't use the line a lot. I'm sure there's plenty of listeners that know what the line is, but just briefly explain that so that people can keep up. No, 100%. So if the Lakers are playing the Knicks in our previous example, and the Lakers are favored to win the game by four points. So in any NBA matchup, there's going to be, to make sure that there's even money, I guess that's where we'll start. And we explain this in the podcast because it's very interesting. In basketball, and, and just pretty much universally in sports, on a game, betting markets want 50% of the money on one side, and they want 50% of the money on, on another side, right? And if the Lakers are a better team than the Knicks, then they're not. You can't just pick one side mm. and get and and win your bet. You have to give up some points. So if the Lakers are, if if the betting markets deem the Lakers a four point favorite, then the line is minus four. So if if the Lakers win the game by four points, everybody just gets their money back. You know, thanks for playing. Uh, it's a push. If gotcha. the Lakers win by five points and you bet on the Lakers, you win your bet. If the Lakers win by three points, if they win by two points, if they win by one point, if they lose, then you lose your bet, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where the that, that important, like if the Knicks hit a last-second shot and the Lakers only win by three points, the Lakers win the game, you lose your bet. So gotcha. the line is four in this example. And that's for Donahue. So he could bet, if he was refereeing a game, the line meant everything. And if the line was six or seven points, and his team in the fourth quarter needed some points, then Tim Donahue could call a couple extra fouls, put make sure you know his team got to the foul line enough times to chip away. And the right team usually won, right? It wasn't like you know some of these controversial playoff games and finals games where it seemed like the wrong team was winning. In a cat in a in a midseason game, you know, Charlotte versus Minnesota in a game that is that very relatively few people are watching very few people are paying attention to if charlotte wins by four instead of six who cares well when it comes to the betting markets a lot of people care Hmm. and and that's where this gets as far as donahue's role in this thing you know that's that's what he was doing he was basically a think of him as a maestro the Hmm. entire game was under his control he was puppeteering everything as just one referee you don't need three if you have one referee who has a motive to influence a game, to manipulate a basketball game, that's all you need. And we heard it from Michael Franzese, who was a, a capo in the Colombo crime family, who had two referees on his payroll that weren't Tim Donahue. And he says the same thing. If you have one referee as somebody who wants to manipulate the outcome of, of a basketball game, you are good. Well, you let's, are, let's you slow have, it down a little have, bit because you know you've thrown in michael francis's name there and i i feel like if people are li- have listened to whistleblower they'll be delighted to get to that bit but i feel like there's a bunch of people that have and and we should take them by the hand into this because you establish this friendship with tim what kind of weird friendship that comes out of this article where you basically said i don't think he acted alone right ha- tell me about establishing that friendship because from what I can tell, he starts unloading the dirty secrets of the NBA to you. And it isn't you think to yourself, oh, I might make a documentary out of this. 
And it's only one you hear serial that you go, you know, a podcast series would be perfect to allow this to play itself out in the luxury of time and space. Love it. And thank you for reeling me back in because I would have just t- talked about betting lunch for the next two hours. <laughs> no and I, I, think, I think your well, audience... I can't wait to audience, get there. Yeah, no. So Tim Donahue and I struck up this very odd friendship. I wrote an article. I was the first person, as far as I know, and, and I think the only person to have ever written an article that said in so many words, yes, Tim Donahue messed up, but I don't think he's the bad guy. So I was the first person to ever write that article. And so Tim Donahue, the disgraced referee, the guy, if you Google corrupt NBA ref, actually, I don't know this, but I'm I'm 99% sure. If you Google corrupt NBA ref, his Wikipedia page will pop up. So this guy reaches out to me, sends me an email, and he says, thank you so much for writing this, for writing this. I'm going to show this to my kids one day. And I'm like, what? And then I realized, I was like, oh, uh, nobody's ever said this. Nobody's ever put in public the idea that Tim Donahue was a small part of a very corrupted machine. And so that's where this all started. Was with- so there you have it. That's a little taster of my conversation with Tim Livingston. His podcast series is called Whistleblower. I urge you to go and download it. It is something else. And the rest of that conversation with Tim will be able, uh, you'll be able to hear it on Irishman Inside Basketball when we drop season two, which will also feature the legendary basketball journalist Jack McCallum and many more. Take care of yourselves, lads. I will talk to you this Sunday for the main flagship episode of An Irishman Abroad with Daryl McCormack this Sunday. As I say every week, thanks to Brian Connolly for his production to Tina and Mikey for making this all possible, to John Marr for his extra research, and of course, to Tim Livingston for his conversation here. Something else. Go and get that podcast. It's called Whistleblower. And come over and hear the rest of our Irishman Inside Basketball series on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad.